welcome to T. Hanks for the Memories. I am your host, Darren, and today we are going to be talking about the notorious, the bonfire of the vanities. And joining me to talk about this notorious box office bomb uh, is Martin Sand. Hello, Martin. Hello. And David King. Hello, David. Hello, Darren. Here we meet the uh, the mother of the victim, which is Annie Lamb, played by Mary Alice. Um, and I only know, I mean, she's got a storied career. It's it, like, it's kind of amazing. You know, she's a... I do remember her vaguely from being on A Different World, which was a sitcom that I did used to enjoy. Uh, but she's also like won a Tony in 1987 uh, for, for Fences, uh, which obviously was later adapted into a film. Um, and her final film role to date, because she's not dead, um, was she replaced uh, the Oracle in The Matrix. She was in Matrix Revolutions as the new Oracle. Um, That's right. And so I was like, oh, because I like vaguely recognized her. And I was like, oh, right, that is where she's from. But yes, you know, again, she's someone who's had like a, a long career going into the 70s. But she hasn't done anything since like 2005 when she appeared in an episode of the uh, Kojak reboot. Um, for, for all the yeah, criticism you, know, she's... you can level at this movie, the cast, the casting, yes. But the cast itself, you can't really criticize. Well, I mean, I should say the supporting cast. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, it's not a very big role. You know, she's only in a few scenes, but um, I like that she kind of, you know, she plays this kind of like, uh, and I would say grieving mother, but the, the kid isn't dead. He's just in a coma. Um, but she plays this character like so well. It's like, it's almost like an archetype of like the kind of the grieving black mother. And she does it in a certain way where it, you you, you feel like there's some kind of mo- underlying motivation, which will be revealed later on in the film. But yeah, I just I just kind of like you know the, these small characters. This film, like you say, it's very good at kind of getting this cast together and and having these smaller roles. And we will just keep encountering them as we go through the film because it, this film just keeps casting like really good actors in small roles and then kind of wasting them basically. Um, <laughs> And I like that we get we get to meet um, Sherman's um, father uh, and his his mother as well. Daniel uh, Donald Moffat playing his father. Uh, he's only in this scene and I think a later scene. Uh, and he he was because we we you know we found out obviously that uh, Sherman McCoy is a trader. Uh, he trades bonds. And I like how there's this explanation. They're trying to explain to Kirsten Dunst what his job is exactly. <laughs> and, you know, he says stuff like, well, you know, I, I lend money to people and make bridges. And she's like, so do you build bridges? And he's like, no. <laughs> so, which I think is probably the best, like the best kind of summation of how little people on Wall Street add to, to like the world in that they just lend money to other people and they don't actually do anything. I love the way that Tim Chattrell explains to Kirsten Dunst exactly yeah. and how she uses the metaphor of the cake and the crumbs falling off and the way she delivers it she's just all smiles all happy but she's just absolutely just ripping shreds off of Sherman it's beautiful <laughs> it's a beautiful scene yeah where she's like if you just imagine like, he goes around picking up all the little golden crumbs <laughs> just kind of really doing him down um, but his father was also a trader apparently but back in his day like they actually did stuff um, yes Back yeah, in his day, when he was um, when he was working from um, judging from his age, from probably around the 1930s to the 1970s, <laughs> that's when Wall Street capitalism was decent. Yeah, he, he caught the subway, so he was a good man. Yeah, that's how you can tell. He's a you know he's a man who knew, who knew his way around a subway token. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if that's meant to be serious or if there's meant to be a little bit of satire, but I have a feeling that Tom Wolfe does admire 
or did admire, R.I.P. Tom Wolfe, um, you know, the traders of the 30s to the 70s, whereas, you know, the kind of the new masters of the universe in the in the 80s, he probably kind of despised a little bit. Although at the same time, he probably still liked them because, you know, Tom Wolfe is probably someone who enjoyed being around wealth. Um, but yeah, and then finally, after, you know, after the opening scene, we haven't heard from Peter Fallow. We have kind of in voiceover. But finally, we now get to meet Peter Fallow properly. And he's in a bar drinking and his boss, Sir Gerald Moore, turns up and is basically kind of he's not going to fire him. But he's like, you're not doing any journalism. We're spending tons of money on you, basically just going around drinking all day. And we're not really happy with that. Um, and so in voiceover, you know, Peter Fallow lets us know that basically he's on the verge of being fired and he's not going to have a job anymore. Um, and so he's got to kind of look for a new job. Um, and I, it's funny because obviously, you know, this is kind of the this this voice over here is kind of the most kind of Tom Wolf stuff where he's basically like, well, you know, I'm not going to be a journalist for a while. So maybe I'll just write a couple of books and make money that way. <laughs> and it's like, uh, you know, it's like that kind of it's like I like that kind of, you know, casual like, oh, I'll be a journalist for a couple of years and then I'll just go write a book or whatever. Boom and that's shit. how I'll make some money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then this is when uh, J.W. Pepper from Live and Let Die walks in, um, uh, played by um, Clifton James. And again, another great actor. I, you know, I, I'm i not a fan of his... I mean, I guess J.W. Pepper in Live and Let Die is, is a funny character. Uh, but I kind of like how he just walks in and he's like, oh, there's a, this hit and runs happened. You know, this, this, this black boy's in a coma. You might want to go and investigate it. And then he just kind of wanders off. And that's like his contribution to the film is kind of putting him in touch. Um, and obviously this is, you know, this is where, um, you know, he, he basically, he gets put in touch with uh, the Reverend and he writes the story, which, you know, turns into a headline about, uh, you know, honor, honor student in coma. <laughs> um, although his investigation of how, you know, this kid was, is an honor student is quite funny where he, basically the, the line is that if they just turn up and don't piss on the teachers, then they're considered cooperative and that puts them onto the honor roll. Um, so there's an implication that this kid is is not in any way redeemable. But the fact that he's in a coma immediately makes him, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, this angel child who now everyone has sympathy for. Um, which, you know, I guess that's kind of the, the broadest satire that's in this film is the idea that this victim might not be as saintly as everyone is making him out to be. Um which in turn is, um, I mean, in a vacuum could be a nice bit of satire if you accept some of the premises. But this whole um, interview with the teacher is so offensive. Um, this teacher who just says, well, if you're a black kid in the Bronx and you manage to graduate from high school, which you do by just showing up and not pissing off the teacher not setting the school on fire or whatever um you'll you'll be um accepted into city college um under affirmative action um <laughs> that's that's a bit of a whopper yeah and i th i think i think the funny thing is it's like he says well city college have got very broad like acceptance for black children <laughs> it's like Okay, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I, I personally think that this is not the most offensive scene because we haven't yet met 
uh, uh, District Attorney F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> that will be the most offensive scene. So I guess comparatively, this is not as bad. Uh, but Did yeah, you recognise like, who uh, who played the teacher? No, I I don't think I even made a note of that. Who's the who's oh, the actor right. playing the teacher? Uh, now I hope Richard, Richard Libertini from Fletch. Oh, is well, Ed Rifkin is the teacher? That's right. Yeah. Is he, yeah. He's, he's got a, he's one of those recognisable faces, but yeah, yeah, from Fletch. And Fletch Lives. And Fletch Lives, love, that's right. I, I love Fletch and Fletch Lives. And now I'll have to watch those again to see if I can spot him. Uh, Frank Walker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, there we go. And the, the last film he was in that got a, a release at the cinema was Dolphin Tale. Um, he died in 2016. Oh, R.I.P. Um, and Dolphin Tale, of course, also stars... Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah. So, oh yeah, but yeah, like this whole teacher speech is just a terrible. And, but I, I, I like that immediately the spin that Peter Fallow puts on it is, um, you know, honor roll student in coma. Um, and this uh, throws Sherman off his game uh, where he ends up losing $600 million uh, because he's distracted by this headline. Um, and of course, a- upon... Is this where he loses it, or does he lose it later? Am I confusing? No, I think he's, he's, this is it. He's getting his uh, his yeah. boots polished, um, and he's on the call. And yeah, he sees the newspaper headline. This is actually not. It's a good little bit of acting, I think, from Hanks because he he, he plays it fairly silently. He's on the call, but you see his face just yeah, just looking oh shit. Um, yeah, it was a nice little touch. Yeah, he's rattled. He loses six hundred million dollars. Which is obviously not a good thing. Um, and and here's where I have a question because um, yes. it's Bruce Willis's character. It's it's Peter Fallow who um, wrote that article, um, and I'm not sure if I missed something. But um, this tabloid uh, thing—that's the job he oh. was absent from, right? Did I get that right, or is that a new job? Yeah. Uh, no, 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 he's I th- still on the. He's still in his job. But he's been told by his superiors, that he, by his boss, that he needs to start basically writing stories again. He's still on the payroll. Yes. Yeah, so Gerald Moore is like, we need you to to do something more than like investigative journalism that takes months to come up with a story. And so I think he's only like he was put in touch with this, um, you know, with the the Reverend, which we you know we're obviously going to see in the next scene, I think. Um, but like the whole point is, he's just writing a puff, like essentially like a puff piece. He's just like. You know, just putting, you know, like taking the this, the kind of this story and putting like a positive spin on it and just doing like a, you know, clickbait, essentially. I was um, just expecting his job to be at a magazine or something, because a magazine maybe would um, keep a writer around that delivers um, uh, uh, a hit story uh, every couple of months. But a daily tabloid newspaper. Yeah, I mean, I it's funny because mentioning Fletch. Um, that is kind of what Fletch does. Fletch goes like undercover for months on end and then eventually delivers a story that kind of, you know, brings down, you know, a sheriff's department or whatever. Like that's that that's like the kind of the thing that he does. And it feels like we're meant to have the same thing about Peter Fallow, where he kind of does that, where he works on a story for months and then delivers it. But yeah, it's odd that a tabloid would employ an investigative journalist it, it to do that kind of stuff. It could just be fantasy from Tom Wolfe there, that uh, you just get to sit around and drink and just be continually paid for your... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, but Sir Gerald Moore was basically telling him that if he doesn't do, like, if he doesn't deliver a story, he will be fired. 
And I think him just kind of getting this tip and just writing, you know, this kind of clickbaity type story, um, that that is like the payoff for that. Um, Could you just say as well the uh, the front page of the the paper that Tom Hanks sees in this scene? It's possibly the worst fake front page of a newspaper in cinema history. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed it. It just looked terrible. It looked so cheap, and it I I it, it just has really weird punctuation. In, it does in big headlines. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's funny because like this film is coming out like just around the time when, um, where printing presses were becoming more uh, movable type rather than like set presses. So it's funny because this looks like somebody has basically got like Photoshop, or you know, uh, Quark one, and they've basically just thrown something together um you know because they don't know how to use like desktop publishing software properly yet um and so yeah it looks like it's been faked by someone who doesn't quite know what they're doing but the weird thing is when a lot of newspapers made the shift over to kind of you know more um kind of electronic stuff some of the stuff did end up looking like this so it's i don't know it kind of looks accurate for like an early 90s uh, paper but yeah no it's not a very good it's like such a weird, but I think the whole the whole point is it's just meant to move the plot along. So I'll kind of excuse it to to get us to the next scene, uh, where of course Sherman goes to tell Maria, you know that obviously um, there's an issue. I think this is where she reveals that she's subletting the apartment. Is this where the guy comes in to bug the apartment? And yeah. he oh, that he's, um, yeah. yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. The guy says he's fitting an intercom, and he, you know. It'll be revealed later on he wasn't fitting an intercom, but he wants her to sign it, and um, she can't sign it because it isn't her apartment. She's subletting it. It's actually an apartment that is only three hundred dollars a month, which you know seems seems like a steal, but is also a plot point in the TV show Friends. When on the very last episode they explain how they could afford such gigantic apartments, and the answer was rent control. And so this apartment is rent controlled for three hundred dollars, but she rents it out for eleven hundred, and she gives the money uh, to uh, the character played by Beth Broderick, whose name I have completely forgotten. Caroline something, Caroline Hefshank. Caroline, yeah, yeah, Caroline Hefshank. But I don't think we ever get her surname on screen. But you know, from the book, you know that it's Hefshank, which is obviously a real surname. Um, but yeah, so she, I mean, the fact that she's subletting from Caroline is, here is just a minor plot point, but obviously later on in the film we will actually meet Caroline and this becomes uh, a motivation. Um, but yeah, so, you know, someone is fitting the the, 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 the so-called intercom um, and this is where Sherman is like, we should go to the police and she's like, no, let's not do that because I was the one who's driving. <laughs> so uh, it's going to end up with me being sent to prison uh, uh, we also get a little kind of minor plot point where we see a painting, which is clearly of her nude, and um, she kind of covers it up quickly. Uh, there's an implication, obviously, that this is the only per- this is not the only person she's having an affair with. Um, and uh, we then get yeah, some Tom Hanks un- looks at the painting and says, "Hey, that looks like you." And I watched <laughs> that and I was like, "Does it?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it's in the script, but production design obviously weren't able to keep up with that. So, uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, it's good that she covers it up pretty quickly so you don't get too much time to scrutinize it. Um, but yeah, and then in the next scene, we get ourselves some unwanted Geraldo Rivera. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. a wild Geraldo appears. 
these days he is a right wing nutbag and a complete and total shit. So it's kind of annoying that he's in this film. But then again, Bruce Willis is also a little bit right wing. So, you know. Is, um, it, is it wrong to say, like, I mean, I'm with you. He's an absolute scumbag, Drella Rivera, but he kind of holds his own in the scene. I mean, it's not really yeah. a stretch. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, he kind of plays himself, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's, he's yeah, he's, he's like he's a TV He's not self-conscious gen- or anything. No, I, well, this is why I kind of hate him because yeah, he's 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 kind of okay in this. <laughs> he's not terrible, um, but yeah. So what's happened is the, the Reverend Bacon has set up this vigil uh, or slash protest. It's not one hundred percent clear exactly what it is, um, but he's only invited Peter Fallow to cover it, and Peter has invited his TV connection, uh, played by Geraldo Rivera, so they can get some press for this, um, you know, this case. Um, and we get, like we said, there's a little split screen here, which I thought worked really well, where you have the two journalists on one side and you have the the, the kind of protest on the other side. Um, and, you know, basically, uh, this is where, is this where Reverend Bacon gives another speech where he's talking about, um, you know, what's happened with this hit and run, if I remember correctly. Uh, and, you know, basically kind of get some press for, you know, uh, the kid who is in a coma, uh, which... I guess kind of works a little bit because then the DA sees this as played by an uncredited because he didn't like the film once it was finished. F. Uh, Murray Abraham. He was in some kind of contract dispute. And so he was like, um, up, he wanted to be billed above the title, um, which is a little much because I would say out of all the characters in this film, I don't know that I don't know that he's in, in, in this enough to really get, I'd put Saul Rubinek above the title before I put F. Murray Abraham above the title in this film yeah so um you know apparently he was he was he was mad at that and so he said take my name out so he's not billed anywhere in this film um and he's playing the extremely racist uh district attorney (laughs) but who's racist in a really weird way in that he he says the n-word at least twice in this scene uh he refers to himself using a slur he, refer- he refers to other groups of people using slurs. And the irony is he's after the, he's, he's trying to prosecute a white guy so that he can appeal to all these different minorities that he then goes about <laughs> just reading off a bunch of slurs. Uh, I, I find it very strange in this scene that he's, um, he's the district attorney of the Bronx and he's in a room full of his assistant district attorneys. But yeah. Saul Rubinek comes up to him and he's like, who are you? So he doesn't know any of his yeah. assistant district attorneys like how it's like how does that work i think because he i think the whole point of kramer is he's newly transferred so when he's like kramer he's like oh i just started like a couple of weeks ago whatever is need like they he, don't really establish that at all no but i think that's what it's meant to feel like that's what it's meant to be is that he he's he's a, he's one of the newer adas and that's why he's trying to prove himself by um taking on these kind of hopeless cases of trying to prosecute white guys for the sake of you know Oh, right. Again, that's a whole different motivation. In the book, he's um, established as a, an assistant DA, and his whole motivation is to impress a juror. Oh. The whole reason he pursues this is to, to impress a juror. Oh, that's good. That's completely different to his film motivation, uh, where he seems to be trying to please his boss, basically. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, this entire scene, I was like, I, I like again, it's one of those where it feels like it's supposed to be satirical. Like, the idea is he's being super racist. But it's reverse racism. Like he wants to attack white people and prosecute white people. 
and he's doing that to get the favor of minorities but he also refers to all those minorities by many different slurs and i'm like i i mean i feel like i kind of understand what they were trying to go for but i just don't feel like de palma has got the oh. skill to pull it off um i think like, no, it I think falls it, apart it's, it's a really uncomfortable yeah. scene i think he's supposed to be one of those um people from you know a um uh, white or white passing minority who think they um, are in the same boat as non-white minorities and therefore um, feel entitled to um, throw, um, for example, the N-word around like black people do with each other. Yeah, I I mean, yeah. he is explicitly Jewish because he, he, he uses a slur to refer to himself. Um, and I, I mean, I, I mean, the, the thing is, we're like 30 years from this film, uh, but 30 years before this film came out, you were like in the, you know, the, the aftermath of the second world war. So it, it feels like and this is some, this is something as well. I mean, this is going to seem like a weird tangent, um, but, uh, the sitcom dad's army, uh, which finished in like 1977, but you know, was on for most of the seventies. That and and the same thing is said of like the Faulty Towers episode with the Germans. It's it's the people who are in those shows can remember the Second World War, and so they have a slightly different attitude to, you know. And I think it's meant to be the same thing with this di district attorney who is explicitly Jewish and obviously yes. feels like there is something about that that you know, particularly in New York. Um, yeah, this is also kind of set play. in yeah. the nineteen uh, eighties when there were still um, you know. Uh, 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 hotels that wouldn't um, uh, uh, that wouldn't host Jewish guests. Um, and, yeah, you know the country clubs, the uh, social clubs, um, yeah. things like that. I mean, there's there's also that where he says, and that will he says he he looks in one direction and says, and that will that will appeal to the Italians <laughs> again, which is like another kind of you know white minority who feel like they've been oppressed. Uh, when obviously it, it's kind of know, they really haven't. It, it is kind of funny again, though. Um, like I mean, from a story point of view as well, because this a lot, a lot of this scene is um, F. Murray Abraham, Abraham um, basically setting him up that you know why he wants to nail Sherman McCoy, what his motivation is, and we already know that because Morgan Freeman basically sit, spells it out. In, earlier in the film, the exact same thing. So it's almost like we're just covering the same tracks all over again. And we should say, of course, at this point, I think Oscar winner, F. Murray Abraham, he'd won an Oscar and a Golden Globe, I think, and even a BAFTA, probably, for Salieri and oh. Amadeus. Um, and here's what I will say. I love F. Murray Abraham. And and I, I don't think that this role, like, I, you know, it's probably a, a saving grace that he took his name off this film because I think people don't associate him with this film in any way. If he'd have, if he'd have had above the title Bill, and I think he would have regretted that. Um, but he, like, he play, he does, like, his performance of this terrible person is so, is so well executed. I think that's the problem with it. Like, you do kind of believe that he has these motivations, um, and he is able to kind of sell the character. I think much like you know Kim Cattrall. Um, and, um, you know, John Hancock, like, you know, these are really good performances where they've actually, like, they have actually invested in the characters. Whereas I would say with, like, Tom Hanks and Melanie Griffiths, I never believe any of their motivations at all in this film. No, it, it is funny. These second-tier char characters do so much of the heavy lifting in yeah. this film. Um, so, 
the district attorney wants the calf that did this hit and run found and you know he doesn't know who it is at the moment but he suspects because it was you know um is it mercedes-benz that they say in the film yes um yeah so because yes. it because it is like a car that only someone who is rich would own i think he knows that this is going to be a rich person <laughs> and he sees this as being this is the person he can go after and obviously because the victim is black this will help him with all the minorities and it'll, you know this is basically going to help his career so he can get re-elected um and so they have partial plates uh, from the other guy who was at the scene and you know the detectives turn up at Sherman McCoy's house um, and they start saying you know do you have a Mercedes-Benz that has you know the, this, this plate starts like this you know because they don't have a description of the drivers they're just going to have to go to everybody on the list and they kind of apologize a little bit for bothering him um, and this is where we get some I would I mean you know, obviously I haven't uh, I haven't gone through every single Tom Hanks film yet but this I would say is some of the worst acting that Tom Hanks has ever done. In this scene, I was like, what is he trying to do? And why does he just look like he's constipated and doing this weird smile and keeps going on about, you know, the system. And this is where we get some like Dutch angles and stuff as he's being interrogated. And like, it just feels like it feels um, the weirdest thing is it feels like the scene in Mission Impossible, where there's a lot of Dutch angles where Tom Cruise is in the restaurant before he like blows up the fish tank and covers it, you know, covers everything with water, where he's kind of like, you know, keeping his his cool and saying, you know, you haven't seen me angry. And here we have Tom Hanks's character trying to cover up the fact, like he doesn't want them to go and inspect his car straight away, so he keeps going on about, oh, you know, there must be like a a process and a system and all this. And I'm like. Like, I understand what his character's doing, but at the same time, I don't think Tom Hanks is really... He's just... Like, the whole scene is a complete mess. Um, no, no. He's, try, he's trying to be uh, tongue-tied, I guess, or, or just because he's caught in the moment. But, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it just doesn't quite work. They're, they're, they walk in. The cops are almost ready to just let him go. It's just a formality. And, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a confusing scene from Hanks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he then immediately goes to see a lawyer, uh, Tom Killian, uh, as played by Kevin Dunn. Um, and again, Kevin Dunn is someone who I really enjoy, like, uh, as an actor. So it's great to see him here in, you know, like a, an early role. Um, and he basically advises him um, to... Does he advise him to, like, say nothing? Or I can't remember what his advice is now. Um, or to kind of implicate Maria or basically say he didn't drive the car. It, it kind of goes from him saying that we've got nothing to worry about yeah. to, oh, yeah, we've got to take you in for, for an arraignment. It just seem, He seems to be the worst lawyer um, for, for <laughs> Sherman McCoy, a man who you'd think could afford the best lawyer in town. Yeah. He seems to go with arguably the worst lawyer in town. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Kevin Dunn is literally the worst lawyer because he's first he's like, there's no problem. And then he's like, you're going to have to turn yourself in. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, and then we kind of get like a big set piece uh, here where we go to the opera um, and Sherman takes his wife. Um, and I feel like this is kind of, I'm guessing like in the novel, this, I don't know if this is a scene, but I feel like this works better in a novel where you can have someone go to an opera that basically spells out the themes of their own guilt without it being so obvious. And instead Instead, we have people here basically say kind of we have him reading the translation um, and it's like talking about guilt and all this kind of stuff. And then as he kind of bumps into the people um, in the kind of I'm guessing the break, 
um you know or even after i i it's never really clear um because kind of the sound of opera keeps playing throughout the whole scene kind of in the background um he kind of keeps running into people who were kind of you know spelling out the themes of it in particular um aubrey buffett um who is this kind of who aubrey buffing should i say not buffett yeah, buffing. buffing, not buffing. buffing. Okay. Uh, played by Andre Gregory, and um, he he basically the funniest thing is they all keep saying, "Oh, you know, he's a poet, and he's got AIDS," and it's oh, <laughs> yeah, which I mean, in like I don't know, in like nineteen eighty seven, I can kind of understand how that would be like a bigger thing, um, but yeah, he like he just kind of he's basically there at the top of his lungs kind of telling everybody what the theme of the opera is and how that relates to Sherman McCoy and his own guilt. Um, and Which, I, I just... I'm sorry, it doesn't. I don't see how Don Giovanni relates to uh, Sherman McCoy other than um, he's a he's a philanderer and... Um, he's kind of sort of involved in somebody's death yeah <laughs> so, yeah it's like i mean i guess obviously we we get the phrase don john from don giovanni so but yeah, like again yeah it's it's so kind of tenuous um and the fact that aubrey buffing feels the need to say this at the top of his lungs to literally anybody who walks past is kind of like he's like the most annoying guest at this opera um but we also get to meet Arthur Ruskin, um, who is obviously the husband of uh, Maria. And I do like, uh, there's a bit of business between Kim Cattrall and Tom Hanks where she basically says to him, like, stop talking to me. Like, you know, we're a couple. We should be, like, mingling with other people. <laughs> like, And I, I, like, I didn't realize, like, in a social situation, only talking to your partner in in public was, like, a bad thing. Like, it was, like, a breach of etiquette or something. Um, so I will have to go and find my copy of Debrett's and double check that. Uh, but yeah, I, d I mean, I, I kind of like that basically she doesn't want to be around him and she's almost using that as an excuse to be like, just go talk to other people. Uh, and of course, he then goes and talks to Maria um, and she does the thing where she's like, you know, just keep smiling and laughing because my husband is watching us. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, this is I mean. I, I feel like again this scene feels a little misplayed like the heavy handedness of it and everything it just doesn't it doesn't quite work um but I do you know like Kim Cattrall is is really good in it and you know I think this is probably one of the few scenes that I thought Melanie Griffiths was doing like a good job of kind of playing this character who's trying to in public you know be like a loving wife but also she's literally talking to I'm assuming one of her many lovers um wow I feel like you're almost, um, I don't know, overpraising Melanie. Like, <laughs> I think she's she's terrible, terrible in this film. I feel like the only character, the, the the only trait she really seems to have in the entire film is that she mispronounces words. That's kind yeah. of the only. And she does a she trait. does a lot of that in this scene as well, particularly with the like the the Russian guy who doesn't understand English. <laughs> I mean, I like I thought it was a funny moment where she like hands him a glass and says, "Would you like to eat my ass?" And he just like he just like nods and smiles <laughs> and walks off. You know, it's an easy joke, but still, you know, I mean, 
At least it's a yeah. joke. It's I mean, something. It, well, this is it. Like I <laughs> for for a movie that's built in a comet, it's comedy. <laughs> there are there aren't many laughs. Yeah, coming. I thought it was like a funny moment, and I thought like she was. This was probably the best grip she had on the character of like this person who's like you know a wealthy woman in public, and she's trying to maintain the facade of like being a loving wife, uh, but she's you know she's talking to her lover like in front of everybody and she's trained not to give that away. I thought she was at least kind of playing that well, but yeah, for most of the rest of the film, she's not good, but I just enjoyed her in this one scene. I was like, Oh yeah, this is kind of, I can see kind of why they cast her in it, you know, like, because you know, she is at this point, she, you know, she was Oscar nominee for working girl. It's not like she can't, you know, she can't act or anything. You know, I just think, Oh no, she's yeah. definitely she she's she she is talented. It just it just seemed it's just gone to waste, I think, in this film. But um, the, the sad thing is too, she's she's a very gifted comic actress too. And as as you said in this scene, um, she does demonstrate that a little. But uh, yeah, just a shame that there there wasn't more. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's, but you know, this is where we kind of we kind of I get we we get the kind of hint that she has other lovers. Um, because you know, there's some talk of of uh, I think is there like an Italian guy or something. There's some mention of that. I think when she came back on the Concord, she was seeing her Italian yeah. lover. I think that was what was insinuated. Yeah, and then yeah. you know, straight after this scene, she basically flees the country <laughs> because Sherman has said to her, "I'm going to be arrested tomorrow," and you know, he wants her to kind of come forward and say she was driving the car, and so immediately she just flees the country with her Italian lover who of course painted the picture of her nude. Uh so like yeah. Uh and she will be missing for a large portion of this film now. Like we we won't see her for a while. Um and then we kind of get into the I, it's really weird because like this feels like this is the meat of the film. Like this is what the film like wants to be about, which is the uh the kind of racial divide and how, you know, like Sherman you know, he's taken in they put some cuffs on him and he's outside the courthouse and then the press basically swarm the car and they knock over Peter Fallow in the process. Again, Peter Fallow's been missing for a little bit of this as well um, while all the stuff's been going on with the opera. Um, and It was really strange too. Um, how Sorry, no, Darren. Okay. How um, it, during the narration, Willis says that uh, he refers to Sherman as my creation. And Fallow's barely been barely been a, a part of the film so it seems a bit um i don't know it's like well where did this come from there's no there's he, he's interviewed one teacher and then uh, all of a sudden we're i don't know we're, we're meant to be on this um on board with fellow i guess that sherman's story that this story is all on him but it just it, it seems to be ignored somewhat i guess by the film yeah um, and after the kind of like once we get inside the court, which is obviously this is uh, Judge White's court. So Morgan Freeman is there with the gavel. Um, it's kind of chaotic and there's a lot of shouting and he keeps like kind of having to hit his gavel to get everybody to quiet down. Um, I mean, personally, I would have cleared the courtroom like wouldn't, don't don't just put up with that nonsense. Um, and I think when they get to the, the, the plea, it's funny because obviously Sherman, he pleads sorry, which I thought was quite funny. Like he's <laughs> he's not he's not guilty or not guilty. He's just very sorry for what he's done, um, which I guess I mean, you might you could might take that as a confession, but I, they don't. Um, and instead, um, Kevin Dunn steps in and says that, you know, he pleads not guilty. And then the bail is set at ten thousand dollars, which again, like. In in better hands, that would be satire, like at the how little the amount of um, bail is. 
Um, and obviously, uh, seeing an opportunity, Kramer uh, appeals to the judge and says that the DA won it set at $250,000. And the judge is like, you're too late. You should have put something in before we got to court. You know, like, that's not how we do things. You, you know, obviously, Kramer is playing to the, the crowd that are in the court. Um, and the judge says, no, you know, he's released $10,000. That's it. Um, so effectively, with a bond, he could get out of there with just a th- for just a thousand dollars, which is insane. But yeah, so I and then we finally, after I don't know an hour and fifteen minutes of this film, we finally get two of the other people on the poster meeting up. As um, Fallow is outside, still I, I, he, he kind of takes off his press badge in resignation, um, and Sherman McCoy turns up looking for a taxi. And he directly asks Peter Fallow, where can I get a taxi? And, you know, then like kind of the press pack emerges again. And so they quickly hurry down and they take the subway. Um, And here is what I will say about this film. Once you have Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis on screen together, like some like the film kind of sort of works a little bit like neither of their characters really work. But like them together, it's like, oh, yeah, these are these are two people who do know how to act. And who can act. And once they're in a scene together. There is like a t- like just the tiniest bit of chemistry. Between the two of them. And the way they interact. Um, and so I kind of enjoyed this little kind of subway ride. Where they were like talking to each other. Um, obviously without McCoy realising. Who Peter Fallow is. Which I thought was. I mean it's a, ni- it's a nice kind of touch. Um, you know. That like Sherman McCoy kind of stumbles upon the one person. Who's basically causing uh, all the issues for him. Other than his mistress of course. It's, it's kind of. It's kind of funny from this scene on, probably from the court scene um, on. Um, Hanks kind of plays McCoy like a, almost like a, maybe he's like carrying it on from big, but he plays it like a child who's in trouble. There's almost this childlike kind of innocence about the the, the pit that he finds himself in. Um, I know it's 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 I know he he. I think he did any of you get that? Like he seems to be playing it. Um, I know he's just this doe-eyed innocent. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do get the kind of yeah, the the fact that he pleads like you know, sorry, and he he kind of is in a daze and he doesn't know how to call a taxi, and when he's talking with you know Willis, I think he says he pissed his pants. Yeah, too. like they're on the subway and he's just kind of like he t- he says you know my dad used to take the subway and you know like yeah it's kind of it's kind of innocent and yeah, he does seem like completely you know, uh, in a daze and not sure what to do, um, you know. And then once he gets home, uh, there's protesters outside, which obviously Kurt Fuller is not happy about, um, you know, and he kind of gets into his home and inside there is a bunch of people who are very happy with the fact that he uh, was, you know, the driver behind the wheel of a hit and run on a minority. <laughs> uh, and they're all kind of cheering him on and applauding him. And then Richard Belzer shows up in a cameo uh, where he he offers oh fellatio to <laughs> to Sherman McCoy, and it's such a like it's such a weird kind of like like he's kind of like chasing him through this kind of his own apartment, kind of saying to him what he'll do to him so that he can get an exclusive on it. And, and my theory is that this is um, Detective Monk uh, undercover. <laughs> Yeah, this is shortly uh, yeah. before he transfers to the Baltimore Homicide Unit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. It was weird to see Richard Belzer just show up in this role. 
Um, and also Tom Hanks finds out from one of his co-workers that he's no longer employed as well. That, you know, after losing $600 million and then running someone down, uh, you know, they can't uh, they can't have him. Um, and then, of course, here this is also where Kim Cattrall, I think, leaves the film because she says she's leaving him. Um, and this is the last we'll see of her in the film. Um, and then we finally... Yeah, it's almost like a throwaway scene. Yeah, just, she's yeah. like, I'm leaving you. And then later on, we see the apartment like emptied out. And it's like, oh, I guess she left then. Um, and this is when Pollard Browning confronts him saying that, you know, there's a bunch of people outside. You know, we think you should li- live somewhere else for the duration of the trial or whatever. Um, and this is where he kind of he, he talks about like what his options are about, like moving somewhere else or, you know, shooting himself with a gun. Um, and we find out that he has got a shotgun in his house for protection and he kind of loads it up. And as he goes out to all the people, because, you know, he wants uh, Pollard to leave, um, you know, he, he kind of tells Pollard to get out and everybody kind of cheers him on, like throwing Pollard out and you know, yelling at him. Um, but then he tells everybody else, you've got to leave. And they all start like laughing. And I was like, OK, this is a little bit weird. And then to get rid of them all, he starts shooting his shotgun in his own apartment, um, which kind of ends with him shooting the shotgun up to the roof and some plaster falling on him. And I think knocking him out because the scene just cuts. Um, yeah, it's, it's very strange. It's um, I, I, I kind of like seeing um, Hanks playing slightly unhinged here, but it's just it's a baffling scene. It's just he comes home and what the fuck? Yeah, like all these all these people are like pro running over young black children. That's their that's their stance. And it's just like this is so odd. Um but yeah, you know, I mean I think obviously the point is we're trying to get him to his like lowest moment. Um and you know, it's not quite trademark Hanks shouting because you know, that's what we normally get from Hanks, but it's just it's just him kind of being angry and shooting a gun. Um so but yeah, um, and then we find out uh, via uh, Caroline, as played by Beth Broderick. I was like, I recognize that actress. Who is that actress? Uh, and of course, it is uh, Aunt Zelda from uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Uh, and I was like, wow, she looks insanely hot here in 1990. I mean, you know, obviously, when she was on, uh, um, you know, uh, Sabrina, she was... I would say 100% a MILF. But here, I'm like, you know, I've never seen her this young. And I was like, wow, this is... And so I was like, oh, I wonder what else she did before this. Um, And the answer is, she started her career a mere five years before this doing pornographic films um, under the name Norris O'Neill, which is such a a weird kind of... Yeah, I know, yeah. So There you go. And I should hasten to add, she did not take part in any sex acts on film. She was she was the actor that carried the plots of those films, which is insane uh, to think that that's where she started. Uh, but yeah, and then you know she done she done like a, a, a you know a number of other films before she appeared in Bonfire of the Vanities. At this particular time, she was invil- involved in a year long affair with Brian De Palma, uh, which explains uh, why she is in this film. Um, but yeah, and then later on, she would be mostly known for being in Zelda, uh, playing Zelda. Which she, she obviously then she did that in um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and then she returned uh, in the role for the more recent Netflix series, uh, playing the same role. So, uh, but yeah, no, I think she's quite funny in this one scene because she's here with uh, Bruce Willis, uh, who, and she's basically saying, you know, she's angry because she lost her apartment. 
Um, and there's a bit of business where she, where he says, so am I finally going to get in your pants? And as he says that, she removes her underwear. <laughs> and and I, don't know, I, I, I mean, you know, I admire what Beth Roderick was doing here because she's doing this kind of physical kind of stuff while she's still talking to, to Bruce Willis. And she does it really well where she gets up on a photocopier and begins to photocopy her genitals whilst she's having this conversation now, I'm going to guess in the novel this would read a lot better because it can be told like from Bruce Willis's point of view and it can be more humorous um, or from his character's point of view, should I say. Um, but here... When you, when you see it on screen, you just think that must be very uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. And the punchline is she wants... She basically says, you know, because um, she has like a, a... You know, she's obviously angry that her apartment... She's lost her apartment, that she, you know, her rent-controlled apartment because um you know she bugged it and somehow they found out that she wasn't living there um which is funny because she says they found out i wasn't living there and he's like oh you know why was that and he's like she's like because i wasn't living there um so you know she was subletting it she wasn't allowed to do that but she bugged the apartment which is who the uh, the guy was who came to fit the intercom and so she is basically saying you know uh, go out there and get uh maria you know uh, because she's the one who's guilty because obviously she's heard what was on this tape and so she knows who did the actual hit and run and the punchline is she takes one of the photocopied pictures of her genitalia and says and you know when when she's when she's finally prosecuted tell her that you know uh that you know i finally got the twat and then she hands over the photocopy of her genitals <laughs> as the punchline to the scene um and then she's not in the film again after this but i i mean i was like this is that's a long way to go for that payoff to that joke. Um, and and of, of course, in the next scene, uh, we then get apparently this was some I mean, Bruce Willis, as we know, in general, is an asshole. And apparently on this film set, he was one of the worst. And this next scene is one of the things where Brian De Palma, like basically he's the, the set was extremely hot and bruce willis didn't really want to be doing this scene for very long so he said to the crew we're going to speed this scene up so it goes by really fast and so he basically like the scene is where um maria's husband dies uh, who obviously we met when at the opera and um while he's being interviewed by um by bruce willis um or peter fellow should i say so peter fellow is talking to um maria's husband he basically has a heart attack and dies and the scene ends pretty quickly and this will obviously prompt maria to return to the country for the funeral um but the like the funny thing is like this scene is very very short uh and apparently that was bruce willis's design he was like i don't want to be on this set very long so let's just get this going and kind of just speed through it and, <laughs> and it's just uh, it's he so could have weird a harrison ford and just charred him <laughs> yeah yeah that yeah that would have been an interesting way to go uh in terms of like the plot but yeah i it, it i it's kind of funny because like you know we we only meet the husband a few scenes before this and then he immediately like has a heart attack and dies and uh maria returns to the country uh once again she's picked up by somebody from the poster this time it is peter fallow and he kind of he meets her in the set almost the exact same spot um, that she she came into the airport before um, and he basically says to her you know I know that you are the one who were driving for the who was driving for the hit and run and so you know I'm gonna go to the the police or whatever 
and you know she's like she kind of shrugs it off and and leaves him and then um peter fallow i think in in voiceover he kind of basically says that he's you know he's going to give the tape to the tape of the um you know the that was given to him by caroline to sherman so that basically he can um you know prove that it was maria um and when when uh when sherman listens to the tape with kevin dunn kevin dunn is like you you can't use this tape because you didn't record it like it's, it's a third party it's you know there's no consent or whatever like it's just not it's not possible to introduce it as evidence even though basically it is a confession from maria um and so sherman goes to the funeral uh wearing a wire in an attempt to get her to basically confess again um and you know while at the funeral she's trying to have sex with him because of course you know she's in an almost constant state of trying to have sex with any man who is near her and she finds the tape that has been attached to him and then uh kramer shows up and there's an implication here that she's gonna have sex with kramer as well because after sherman leaves uh she kind of starts sweet talking him um uh, obviously we'll find out in a bit you know where that went and this is where this is i think where the whole kind of um you know lost little boy thing comes back into play where mr mccoy shows up at sherman's now empty apartment and he says to him you know like obviously we're here to support you and we love you uh, and sherman says you know for him to be innocent he's gonna have to lie and his dad is like okay <laughs> and and his dad who is painted as an extremely moral hard-working man is like sure you know if it's gonna get you off from doing this crime and being prosecuted then go ahead lie on the stand like it's like oh this, this this crime which you are like you know complicit in anyway as well so yeah i mean i guess you know the ada has taken its shot because they're charging him with the hit and run they so if he if he's revealed as an accessory i guess they can't charge him with being an accessory i don't know it's like the implication is like they can't do that but i would think there's still a crime to be charged here but yeah he's gonna lie on the stand and we do a smash cut basically to um melanie griffiths already you know um on the stand being uh questioned by the ada and she is crying <laughs> and sad and Again, like, I mean, you know, I don't think Melanie Griffiths is particularly suited to this character, but I do kind of like how over the top this performance is at the end when she's like kind of crying. And then later on when she does like a, a kind of theatrical fainting, like, you know, it kind of, I think it kind of works for the kind of how duplicitous this character is, um, you know, now that she's manipulating Kramer to help her bring down Sherman McCoy. Um and what I like is she finishes her kind of um, her like giving her her, her um, statement and everyone in the courtroom is kind of jubilant and there's a choir singing <laughs> and it kind of goes around the court <laughs> and everyone is like celebrating. I think he like in voiceover Bruce Willis is like, oh, you know, it's all over for Sherman McCoy. Everything's everything's finished, um, you know, and. Like she's kind of like telling these explicit lies, saying that you know he was the one who was driving, and and then like out of nowhere, um, Sherman McCoy like has his briefcase open and a tape recorder in it, and he places like next to the uh, microphone, and it plays it plays saying with her saying we can have a little quickie, 
and you know everyone kind of is aghast in the courtroom in particular the judge um and he just keeps playing the tape like he just keeps on playing it he plays the whole confession where she says you know uh, i was the one who was driving and then you know kramer goes to like leap over the desk this is why i think something has gone on between kramer and uh and Maria, because he defends her so, like he literally like leaps across the desk to try and attack Tom Hanks, uh, and it feels like it's more than just like an ADA. It feels like there's something kind of personal going on there. Um, I, I thought he was jumping across just because that was going to blow his case out of the water. Um, but I, I also kind of wonder too. I mean, I, obviously, I don't have a legal degree, but I've uh, you know seen enough courtroom dramas in my time where uh, surely you're playing this tape in a courtroom. Surely the the judge will be calling it aside and instructing the jury um that to uh, disregard you know you will not be yeah yeah you you, you need to dismiss what's what, what what you've just heard this uh this isn't proper evidence has not through their appropriate channels um it's just i oh know just be this is the point um well, i suppose it became fast earlier on but this is a very partial scene this is where it really just becomes just silly i mean i personally think that this would be grounds for a mistrial I don't think it'd be grounds for him to dismiss the case. But um, the judge calls everyone to the to the bar and he, he says to them what's going on. And this is where Tom Hanks, I don't know why, but he puts on this really weird smirky smile. And he's like, yes, this is my tape. I recorded this tape. This is my tape. I recorded it. He just keeps kind of repeating himself. And the judge is like, okay, then step, you know, step away. And they step away and he goes... Uh, due to this tape, I'm dismissing the case against Sean McCoy. He's free to go. And it's like, um, yeah, I don't think that's how that would work. But, you know, okay. Like, uh, I guess that, I guess that's it then, yeah. Um, and then, out Sherman of nowhere... McCoy did nothing wrong. <laughs> yeah, he's completely innocent. Um, so, yeah, so he just kind of dismisses the case. Again, I think this would be more grounds for mistrial than anything else, but... I can only say that from having watched 30 years of Law and Order. Um, so at this particular point, someone yells out that, uh, I think, is it Bacon, uh, Reverend Bacon, calls um, Judge White a racist uh, for, for this action that he's just done. And then Morgan Freeman just goes on this extremely long speech about how he's not a racist and it just i mean i can kind of understand why they had to cast like uh, a black actor to do this because coming out of the mouth of like you know walter matto this would not fly um and it's it's just insane grumpy old man himself yeah it's just it's just like it's like subtext just made text and it just it's insane and he just does this i mean i guess it's his court so he can say whatever he wants in it but it's just crazy that for like 3 minutes he just goes on this rant about how he's not racist because I don't know, like, you can't just prosecute white guys. <laughs> I like, the, I feel like the message is slightly muddied a little bit, but yeah. So he... yeah, Isn't it great you got Morgan Freeman to deliver a speech about basically how reverse racism is real? <laughs> yeah. And he kind of, he <laughs> criticizes the DA for pushing this case with not enough evidence. And, you know, he kind of, yeah, he, he, he like kind of, says to people that they should be nice to each other and change their ways and Sherman is free to go and that's it he like exits the court um and yeah it's kind of and then you know we then get back to the opening of the film 
where a basically half comatose Bruce Willis wearing sunglasses was about to give some speech because his book is something. Um, and and then we... It's being relaunched. Yeah, I, I, I mean, maybe the paperback's coming out. I don't know. And so, you know, we get to this point where, um, you know, he tells us in voiceover that Sherman McCoy has basically got, disappeared. Um, he's kind of just left. And he then kind of tries to wrap up with like a, the moral of the story, uh, which is, you know, like Sherman McCoy had everything and lost it and became like a decent person. I don't think that's tr- completely true. <laughs> like I don't see I didn't see that happen on film, but OK. And then he's like, and I'm a decent person, but now I've got shit tons of money and I don't know who gives a fuck, and the, the film just ends there. Well, yeah. well, it, it, it basically ends on a Bible quote. Um, yeah, which is taken from um, I think the God. No, I don't think I know because I uh, uh, I just remember I looked it up. It's it's from the Gospel of Matthew, and um, you know, um, <laughs> I. Uh, I went to Catholic school. It wasn't the happiest years of my life, but uh, that's a different story. Uh, this this is from this is from uh, where in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus is um, predicting his own death, and um, <laughs> he's basically he's basically telling um, Peter and his disciples um that uh, 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 uh he's not going to be um uh, uh, king of the world um but is going to die for all mankind um <laughs> you know f- for our sins and um the i don't have the english wor- version here but it's it's the it's the bit that goes um what good is it to a man if he wins the whole world but loses his soul yeah Whereas Bruce Willis is like, I don't care that I've lost my soul. I've got tons of money now and I'm super wealthy and I've won tons of prizes for my book. And then he just ends on a freeze frame of him smirking. And I'm like, okay, am I meant to like Peter Fallow? He's been missing for like 60% of this film and he keeps giving us voiceover, but I don't know how he knows those things. But apparently after the trial, he like interviewed Sherman McCoy at length and turned this into a book. I personally don't know how you can turn... I was with my mistress and she ran over a black kid in the Bronx and then I was almost sent to jail for it into a book. Like, I don't know how that could... That's, that's barely a magazine article. Um, so, uh, but I guess Tom Wolfe successfully wrote Bonfire of the Vanities, which was extremely long. So I guess he turned that into a book. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's just like a terrible ending because it's like Sherman McCoy is now a nice person. I don't think that's correct. Um, you know... Like, is Melanie Griffiths' character being prosecuted? We don't know. They never tell us. All the people throughout this film who basically turned up and either said that um, Peter Fallow is a terrible person or they don't want anything to do with him, they're all there at his book launch for some reason. He's being introduced by the district attorney who, I'm guessing, lost his election because of the the failure of the, the Sherman McCoy trial or, I don't know, maybe he prosecuted Melanie Griffith and, and he got re-elected for that. But why is he introducing this author? It doesn't make any sense. I guess it's just because F. Murray Abraham was on set. Um, but yeah, it's a completely muddled ending. And it also makes the opening make absolutely no sense. Like, why is there such a big fuss about this guy 
going to make a speech for a book that's been out and has won tons of prizes and they've just put a gigantic mock-up of the cover up for some reason like why is that mock-up like 10 feet tall like why is it there what what why, why are Reverend Bacon and the district attorney together have smiling, clapping when like they're yeah, yeah, they they they, they were you know they're they're enemies. It's uh no, nothing makes sense. It's just a uh, it it's the worst happily ever after ending. Yeah, and the happily ever after is Bruce Willis's character's got a ton of money and he can do whatever he wants, <laughs> which I'm guessing for like Tom Wolf, yeah, that's that's a happy ending that a writer got a ton of money for a book and won lots of prizes. But for the rest of the world, I'm like, what? What is this? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, here is what I will say about this film before we give our ratings of it. Um, like, it is well shot. There are some beautiful shots in this. There's some great kind of character actors from some of the smaller roles, and they give some wonderful performances. Uh, you know, like the whole kind of Beth Broderick taking off her underwear whilst photocopying her genitals whilst talking to Bruce Willis. Like... Like the stuff like that, and you know, like the the kind of the stuff with Reverend Bacon, um, you know, once I mean we skipped over it, but once we once we get to see the boy in a coma, um, there is something implied where they say they're going to sue the hospital because uh, they when they came in they said it was a broken wrist and then now he's in a coma, and so they're going to get like ten million from the hospital. So Reverend Bacon is shown to be someone who is you know just as kind of greedy as everybody else, and then the mother is like. Oh, and I'm going to need some clothes. So can somebody buy me some clothes? <laughs> so it's like everyone's like on the take and amoral. And, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of kind of small performances in this that are really good. But the whole film is sunk by the fact that Tom Hanks is too likable to be this horrible person. And, you know, maybe Chevy Chase, you know, which was suggested as one of the maybe I could have hated Chevy Chase in that role. But. I can't, I can't hate Tom Hanks as this character and they, they try to they also try to soften him too much so that there isn't you can't like hate his character and you clearly meant to hate his character but nobody in this film seems to realise that and you know that's a kind and again Melanie Griffiths just sounds like she's just reading words off a page she isn't this kind of gold digging character um, and Bruce Willis at least is moderately animated but again just not suited to this role should have been a completely different actor playing this part um but you know the studio did that classic thing of we need to make money so we need to cast people you know who have got names that we can put on the poster um but what yeah, do you mean just... there's no good guy in this story <laughs> yeah i mean yeah it just like it's i mean the thing is in a novel it's like you can kind of get away with having every person in a novel being a complete and total ass that you hate because you're able to put like the author is able to put other points of view in you know that can be there as like a you know through like a you know an omniscient narrator or something like you could do it in a way so that you don't have to like anybody in a novel i mean of you course. know some, I yeah. mean, I might be wrong about this, but the title reminds me of Vanity Fair, and that's um, famously yeah. a novel without a hero. I mean, you know, I disagree with Jane Austen, but she said she wrote Emma to be a heroine who only she would like. I mean, she kind of failed because, you know, she's such a good writer. You end up, you kind of end up liking Emma. You can't help but like her, you know. But like... The uh, you know it's something that you can do in novels that is a lot harder to do on film, and I certainly don't think that Brian De Palma had the skills to be able to do that. And you know, I, I'm I, I'm going to give my rating and say 
no T. Hanks. Um, you know, because he also he's not in enough of this film. Like he keeps coming in and out for scenes, and you get like ten minutes with him, and then he vanishes. And you know, the whole thing becomes about a district attorney who's yelling and screaming racial epithets at people. And so it's like, you know, a lot of the time I was like, what am I watching? What is this film? It's competently shot, and you know, you can't go wrong with um, Vilmos Sigmon shooting it. But like everything else in it, just doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to go to the ratings and I'm going to say, Martin, T-Hanks or no T-Hanks? Um, no no T-Hanks. In <laughs> fact, no um, F. Mary Abraham you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll read to you. I'll read to you uh, the entirety of my notes for this movie from my notes app which goes like this escape from new york racist what geraldo question mark explanation point what the fuck don giovanni richard belzer matthew 1626 oof <laughs> and that to me is bonfire of the vanities yeah uh, David, your rating? T Hanks? No T Hanks? Oh, no, no T Hanks. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with um, what you said. It's a, it's a it's a beautiful film to look at. Um, there's little nuggets of quality just just peppered throughout the movie. Um, just like the secondary characters are colourful and and almost I wouldn't say they make the movie work, but they make it somewhat interesting here and there but um especially after reading the book i mean it, it's that they, they've taken the main through line of a broad story and removed anything that made the book interesting um slaps the name bonfire of the vanities on and you know basically put it through the hollywood machine it's just it's so bland um and you know t tom hanks who we're all here because we love tom hanks um it's it, it yeah he really should have just walked away from this one um just oh it's just 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 wrong all around and brian de palma um i i don't understand when the producers got the rights to this book who who thought oh, hey yeah let's bring brian de palma on for this uh this sharp social satire um <laughs> i don't know maybe they saw something in carrie or you know scarface that i didn't but um yeah, I, I just I find the, the movie just baffling. I think it'd make a really interesting um, if they were, they were they were to do the uh, the miniseries route. Um, I think they could make something interesting out of it. But uh, no, it's 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 a dumpster fire. It sucks. Yeah, I should say for the, like you know of note, um, this is the first time that Tom Hanks is in a film that is adapted from a novel. Um, previously, he was in Dragnet, which obviously was adapted from a TV show. Um, everything else up until this point has, apart from Mammy One Red Shoe and Money Pit, everything has been like original material. Um, and going forward, you know, the next two times Tom Hanks is in an adaptation of a novel is Forrest Gump and then Green Mile. So this is like this is kind of like the one like really big misfire of like an adaptation of a like, like pre-existing material. Um, of course, then you know further down the line we end up with stuff like Da Vinci Code, but. It feels like, I mean, you know, he took a year off after this because he was just, he was kind of burnt out. 
Um, and this is this is like the fourteenth film that he'd done in six years. So I can understand why he was burnt out. You know, if you're doing like two to three films a year, like every single year, like 1984 to 1990, and he's already done 14 films. And that's that's an, like an amazing rate to be working at. So I can understand why basically, you know, he took time with his wife to say, why am I, why am I an actor? Like, what am I doing? Um, and apparently for the next year, he spent a lot of time just throwing scripts away and being like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he actually, and he basically said, I'm only going to do a script if I, I like really connect with it and I feel like it's going to be a good film because he feels like he, you know, kind of took this film just kind of out of an obligation. And, you know, because people are like, yeah, we want we want you, Tom Hanks, to be in this film. Like, we need your name on the posters. So we can make money. It was like their motivation. Um Is this the first time had Hanks worked with a, a director of De Palma's caliber? before uh i, I mean how do you feel about gary marshall like an or like an auteur i guess someone like you know an auteur like the palm i mean i mean i would put joe dante on the same level i would say the burbs is probably you know okay yeah yeah um, sure. but yeah and uh, 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 yeah everybody else i mean apart from me i mean i don't know it depends how you feel about ron howard and splash but <laughs> no i think 1984 i'd, I'd even say now ron howard <laughs> yeah um <laughs> uh, but yeah so you know and he, and he, and he, I mean, nothing in common, I think, was Gary Marshall. You know, that's, I mean, Gary Marshall has a distinctive style. So, uh, but yeah, this is kind of the first time he's worked with someone who's kind of like, you know, a 70s movie brat, like somebody of that kind of caliber. Um, but, you know, from this point on, Tom Hanks was like, if I don't like the script and I don't think it's going to be a good film, I'm saying no to it. And that immediately. So something turned everything around so something good did come out of the fire vanity yeah well that, this is it yeah basically tom hanks was like i'm not just going to do a film because you want my name on a poster and you know that that will make you money um you know and then obviously he basically spent the next kind of like 10 years making nothing but good films so you know <laughs> it kind of worked uh you know the turnaround from this this film which basically on imdb has got like a 5.6 and it's 16% on Rotten Tomatoes. And even the audience on Rotten Tomatoes is 26%. The next film that we do, it's 84% audience approval. 7.3 on IMDb. 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's basically certified fresh for the next 14 films. Like, there's Tom Hanks, he, like, he, I don't know what happened to him in 1991, but he figured out how to make good films. Um, so, but I will say to both of you, uh, is there anything before we go that you wish to plug? And I'll start with Martin. Is there anything from you? Nothing at all. And is there anything from you, David? No, nothing from me. Don't get vaccinated. That was Martin's message in the last one. <laughs> uh, and you can find us uh, on Twitter at T underscore FT memory, uh, which is an extremely awkward handle to follow. Um, uh, and obviously, thanks to both of you for being my guest to watch this awful film. Um, uh, today, which I I will say this, I don't think it is as bad as its reputation, but it is not a good film. So that is, you know, that's the the best review I can give of Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, so thanks to both of you, gents. Well, thank you for the um, you. group therapy session. <laughs> now, I would say, fellas, that this film is, you know, probably if we were talking football terms, Division Two, but the next film is going to be. In the league.